Welcome to the next episode of Lessons from the Lab. I'm Devin Rubin, and I'll be hosting this episode. The goal of this is to provide you with some practical knowledge related to the practice of EMG or neuromuscular medicine. And I will be bringing a guest in to discuss a practical case that we had in our laboratory. It's been a great day. I'm really looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to this all day today. Uh, I worked in the EMG lab. It was a challenging day. We had quite a few interesting cases, ones that caused us to scratch our head, to think about the patients. And uh, it's, a, it's a good mentally exhausting day, but a great way to end the day is to spend some time with my guest today, Dr. Michael Anderi from Michigan State University. He's an experienced electromyographer, and uh, we have always have a nice time discussing topics related to EMG. Uh, we like to banter back and forth a little bit, so I've I've been excited to give him some challenging questions on a fairly common case, and hopefully you'll learn something and you'll enjoy the discussion. It's a pleasure to welcome my guest, Dr. Michael Anderi. Hi, Mike. Good to How see you. How are you, Devin? You're Good up. You. Are you up in Michigan at Michigan State? At Michigan State University, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Are you in your in my basement? Your basement, okay. Yeah. Your home basement or your work basement? <laughs> My home basement, but <laughs> I have I have worked from home quite a bit, you know. Yeah. Home, so. Now, do you do you have an EMG machine in your basement? I don't. I want one, but I don't have one yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to get get uh, get get uh, our institution to buy me an EMG so I can just play with it when I have nothing to do at home. Right. Well, I have a skeleton. I play with that once in a while, but not so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, what did you, were you at home all day or were you working it today? No, today uh, is Tuesday. So I did actually inpatient rounds this morning and I will not be sticking people with needles for EMG till tomorrow morning. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, then I can't ask you how your EMG day went today, but I had a good day. I saw lots of interesting things and uh made us all think hard about what we do and the techs oh. what they're doing can i tell you what happened with me emg so i didn't have emgs today i was doing rounds our residents were doing an inpatient emg and they brought me back pictures and the ground was broke on the machine i was like what why i don't get this what's happening yeah i said why don't you see if the ground is broke which it was so they were in the ICU doing, you know, an AIDP workup and uh, without ground. with a bad ground. Oh yeah, it went really bad. So they thought, yeah, I can imagine it's bad enough doing an EMG in the ICU with a good ground. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, so, well. Yeah, so I guess I didn't really do an EMG, but I impacted one. I'm you impacted. One. That's 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 what's most important, right? As long yeah. as we're having a positive impact. Yeah, so. that's right. Well, I wanted to, you know, the goal of this is to is for us to teach our viewers something about uh, EMG and uh, or how we approach a patient and um, and and give maybe some of your practical knowledge and wisdom to help people who are performing performing studies in their practice. So I thought what I would do is I'd present a, a case to you, a very straightforward case. Um, of a patient that we ha had yesterday in our laboratory. And it was a, and I'll just pick your brain and see what you think. And we can talk about how you would approach this patient. But it, it, the patient was a 55-year-old woman who 
was sent for a question of a cervical radiculopathy. And the story, her symptoms were fairly vague, but she had about three weeks of uh, pain in her neck. It was her right side of her neck. And um, the pain kind of went down her arm. It was really vague, just kind of achiness in her arm. And she felt that she had this numbness and tingling that would sort of come and go over the three weeks throughout her right arm. And she she couldn't really specify which fingers. It wasn't her thumb or index finger. It was really vague as, as we see a lot. I don't know if you do, but lots of patients can't specify. Every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the typical patient. Um, <laughs> So, so that was her story. And in her exam, when I examined her, her strength was normal throughout her arm. Uh, her reflexes were normal, although her triceps uh, was questionably slightly reduced. Uh, she was a bit, had a bit larger body habitus, so it was maybe a little tougher to tell, but maybe slightly reduced triceps. But otherwise, her examination was normal. So, okay. That that was it. So that's good enough. Yeah. You you want me to start? What am I going to do with this person? Yeah, yeah. What what would you do? Like what would in your lab or what would you do? So if you're my resident, the first thing I want to know the most important reflex is the Babinski and somebody with neck pain. I would argue. Okay, just because we're going <laughs> to play a game here, right? Because a decreased triceps are not going to go to. You know, it's not cervical stenosis, but almost every month we see somebody coming from family practice or an NP, not neurology, but somebody else who misses a Babinski and they've got a cervical stenosis or myelopathy and they get missed. So you probably didn't do that, though. No, I, you know, I think I need to train more with you. So I, I skipped the Babinski. In fact, okay. I didn't even take her shoes off, but I think that's a good, I think that's a good point. And, and. Well, yeah, I mean, that's certainly right. if, if there were concerns about, you know, she had other symptoms, then yeah, obviously yeah. we would do that. She had trouble walking. I think you'd probably do that. I know you would personally, but you know, just for the point, my point being, if you come in with neck pain, my residents, I joke, I say, even if they have an amputation, I want to see no other Babinski sign. So they always get it. All right. So how do we approach that? Right. Yeah. How do you, yeah. Well, so we could. We could debate this. I don't know if you're going to do it, but I'll I'll take a a stab that might be different than yours because I we do our own nerve conductions and we have residents, so I don't have text. And um, I might do needles first. It's maybe twenty to thirty percent of the time I'll do needles first. Just thinking cervical radiculopathy is number one on my differential. Uh, carpal tunnel, everybody's got that. Ulnar neuropathy is lower on our list brachial plexopathy, and this is only three weeks old, you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, oh, I hate that. <laughs> That's why I'm presenting this case uh -oh, to you. <laughs> you are cruel. I was paying attention to you, Devin, but the denial has gotten by me. Okay, so. So let I me do... ask you, like, yeah. so the, the thrift, so why, why do you, well, why do you hate it? Why, why do you say that? And I think we would agree, but why? Well, there, there might be a lot of axon loss, and next week there might be fibrillations, but today there might not be. Yeah. So would and, you do, would you do, when someone comes in and it's three weeks, do you do the EMG or do you, do you delay it for a week or? This is okay. a shared decision. So I'll look at the patient 
and decide how long our waiting list is and all that stuff. And sometimes I'll say you should come back in a week if, if their Babinskis are down going, okay? If they, um, yeah. <laughs> and it, and all, all things are medically equal, okay? Uh, or I'll say, look, at this could be false negative. I'll use different words than that. And say, I may want you to come back in a week or so if it's normal. What do you want to do? Uh, if AIDP or, you know, some other neuropathy is in the differential, I might do the nerve conductions and have them come back for the needle. If I can persuade myself that carpal tunnel, I know carpal tunnel is low on this, but I would argue people get ticks and fleas all the time so you could see carpal tunnel. So we could do the nerve conductions and then bring them back for the needle EMG. And I'll give you one more scenario. If they're really weak, which you said they were not, but I might do recruitment in some of the C7 muscles and see if that looks neuropathic. Mm-hmm. Um, but and if the strength is really strong, my view is I probably won't find that. So what do you what do you think? So let me let me um, I want to continue this conversation the conversation, particularly with the needle exam. But before we we can, I'm going to pause before we continue with this. And I want to just show you, we, so our techs did the conduction studies first. So we have techs, they, they do it. And I would agree with you, you know, I, I would think, you know, if you're going to throw one part of the test out, the conductions probably aren't that helpful in this situation, unless you're looking or you have a suspicion for carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, which we didn't have a big suspicion, but I'm just going to show you real quickly here. Um, I'm going to share my screen if this will Uh-oh. work. And I'm not going to ask you about this, but I'm just going to show you. Can you see this? Okay, yeah. So, so basically, this is a little bit small. But so what our text, what we did is we did a median and ulnar motor. And we and they chose to do the median and ulnar orthodromic studies because I guess they were thinking maybe this could be carpal tunnel. And and for our lab, they were these were all um, – basically normal. I think that the, the, the orthodromic latency was just kind of borderline relatively prolonged compared to the ulnar, which I, I didn't think was too significant. Given oh, so you the, did your orthodromic at the elbow. Okay. Yeah. We, we stimulate the wrist. We stimulate palm, palm and record wrist and elbow to get a velocity. Oh, cool. But, but the uh, point being is not, and you're welcome to comment if you want, but it's not to come to scrutinize the nerve conductions as much as they were essentially normal for her symptoms, maybe a smidge of, like you said, a tick and a flea of carpal tunnel, but not related to the neck yeah. pain and symptoms. So, so I agree with the carpal tunnel, right? Your ulnar is 1.7 and your median is 2.2. So that's a difference of 0.5. That would be borderline abnormal in our lab. Like Really right. Not explaining neck and periscapular pain. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so so would you do uh, so if you do if you do so I guess another point is, you know, when we see patients that are we think maybe out of a C six or C seven radic, do you do other nerve conductions? Because these don't really test those those roots. Okay. So I get more questions about waking up with numb hands and that, but I might hunt down the carpal tunnel. I might do D1, D2, D5, or D4. I might. It depends on the patient and what they said to me. Uh, I don't think I would do other ulnar nerve. Uh, I, 
I like getting a radial, so I like a D1 because plexopathy is still in your differential, you know, and I'm a little compulsive and I have residents. So, and I, and, and atypical polyneuropathy, would you say 55 year old, you know? So, yeah, I would rarely would I only do this much. I would probably chase down that 0.5 a little bit more depending on the patient. Okay. And I guess also the point to, for, for the viewers is let's, let's say that the Palmers were totally normal and they were some, you know, the latencies were the same we, that when we're assessing, at least I feel this way, when we're assessing for C6 or C7 Rick, we don't have any nerve conductions that really help us. I mean, you can do a radial motor or you could do uh, a musculocutaneous uh, or axillary to the deltoid, but the yield I think of those is so low unless there's a severe uh, radic with severe axonal loss. So we don't do those more proximal motor conduction studies for radics. We, we, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're, they hurt too much. They don't give you a lot of data. And if you don't find it on the needle, and I, I guess the other reason to do other tests is not so much to find radic as to find other stuff that's mimicking it. But yeah, I, I, I you know, so it's, you know, a snap amplitude of, for the radio, like the thumb, uh, radial median of the thumb might be of value. The lack might be, but I, no, I routinely would not do yeah. that. Just so, so it, so it, if I'm understanding, if I'm putting words into your mouth, then the need for a radic assessment, a mild radic assessment, the needle exam is going to be more useful than, than nerve conductions. And that's Absolutely. why, that's why you said at the beginning, you might do the needle exam first because you're, you're more suspicious. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And time and money, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yes. So let's go back to the needle exam. So you, so we were talking about three weeks and you would discuss that with the patient and decide what to do. What, what about if it was two weeks, would you still do that? Or would you, would you, uh, if it really two weeks, I probably would send them out depending on the psychosocial factors. I might needle just the paraspinals. Um, if they're going to go to a surgeon and they're coming from a surgeon, and the surgeon wants it. I, then I would be more apt to go after it, say it's negative. It could be false negative. I will say this. I don't know if you agree, but I've seen frequent, I'm going to use the word frequently, so I don't have to be exact, but it's not rare that I will find fibrillations or a whole bunch of insertional activity in a pretty big radiculopathy at two to three weeks. Uh, so that gives me a pretty strong clue. If they're getting lined up for surgery or MRI or they're weak, that would matter. This case, you're basically giving me a normal exam. So I think it's going to be subtle. I don't want to torture the patient. So unless the patient begs for the needle, I would have them come back. Usually. Yeah. And I get, yeah, no. And I think your point, you know, we have this, we teach and we have this magic number that three weeks is the magic timing of the fibrillations. But but I think I think what you're saying, and I agree that it they can occur earlier than that. They could occur, and, and part of it, I I I've always thought, and I think there's evidence that it partially depends on the the, the distance between where the the axon's been damaged and the muscle. Agreed. That, that, That's why yeah. I do the paraspinals, and I might do the deltoid or some of the more proximal muscles if I thought it was ridiculous. Yeah. And previously, I have seen, and I'm sure you've seen too, if you've done it, where I had a normal study of three weeks, a week later, it had fibs out the wazoo. Same disease. And, so, you know, the question is always, 
when did it start? You know, most of the time. So here's somebody who's got vague pain in their hand, and they're really going to tell you exactly when it started. I mean, they'll say, well, yeah, it started. What about two weeks ago or what about two months ago? Well, it didn't hurt that much then. So if yeah, they give me right. that story, then I'll do the needles. Yeah. But if it's truly, I was out, I was running a marathon, I fell on my head three weeks ago today, then I wouldn't. But almost always I can convince myself they had some symptoms before that. Yeah. Now, let me, since you're, you're a really smart guy, I'm going to ask you a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> How many fibs would, would, would be enough to say that it's abnormal? Oh. If you have two fibs? In a three-week year, three-week uh, symptom onset, you have one fib in one spot and one fib in another. Are you going to oh. call that abnormal? Well, you you're just totally baiting me. I can tell. So <laughs> we've had discussions with about this over beers. So you know, so I'm really trying to figure this out, and I know that this is not science in my opinion, but I'm giving you my opinion. This is how, because my residents say, well, how well, how many fibs are there? All right. So here's what I would say. If it's between 300 milliseconds and three seconds, three seconds, sometimes I'll weasel the two, then I'm calling that increase in social activity. If it lasts between three seconds and 10 seconds, 10 seconds, that's one run. Not one plus, one run. If I have two runs, then I call it one plus. So that would be two separate insertions, and that thing would have to go pop, 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 pop. That's one run, not one plus. Okay, we could debate this. I mean, Devin, this is so, I mean, like, you're right down to the nitty gritty, right? And we've discussed this a little bit. If it goes pop, 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 in the last 15 seconds, then I'm calling that one plus. I, in my opinion, that's reproducible. As long as it's clearly a sharp wave, it's not anything else. I can drink my coffee. I can look at it. I can say to the resident, what else could that be? Then I'm done torturing the patient, and I'll take the needle out. That'll be one plus, okay? Uh, and I, I think it's unusual for a 55-year-old to have no to have fibrillations that last that long. So then two plus and three plus are, are bigger than that. How does yeah, that sound? Uh, well, you know, I think, <clears throat> I think it's an interesting thought and discussion. I, I, you know, I think a couple things. One is increased insertional activity in a three-week-old radic and what that means that there's irritability and i think what i would say in that situation in my report is the findings are minimal and and isolated to increase insertional activity which could be seen with a very early process involving that route would you do i would that? exactly say that yeah yeah what i want to do is if i see that especially if i see you know uh you know two and a half seconds of insertional activity you know, at four or five places in the same muscle. Oh yeah, I'm biting on that. Like I, yeah. I, I would even write this will probably turn into fibrillations in you know a week or two weeks or whatever I decide. Yeah, I don't and, I, and, and I think that the the grading of the fibs we would do that somewhat different. And you know, my my feeling is if regardless of how long a spike fires, whether it's let's say over three seconds, I agree two to three seconds would be in, in 
increased insertional, but let's say it's four seconds versus 15. If it's the same spike, I agree it's a fibrillation, but it's one muscle fiber that's been denervated that's firing. So to me, oh. one muscle fiber that's firing for 15 seconds is still a one fiber that's that's denervated and okay. versus versus moving the needle to different areas and having more than one muscle fiber that is firing. So more than one fibrillation, that's where we would call it one plus. If we have definite fibrillation in at least two areas of the muscle. So I, I think that's really defensible and you you have never told me that argument before and i like it i have to rethink it i've been saving really it for know. this discussion uh, just to make me look stupid i admire <laughs> no, that no I, it's <laughs> you know and it gets into the why why do fibrillations persist and you know that that gets more much more technical than i think we want to get into here but um yeah i you know i think the density our grading is more based on the density and and kind of reflects perhaps severity of the fibrillations or the severity or extent of denervation rather than the persistence of the denervation. Okay. I, I see both. I don't know what's right or wrong, but I think that's a defensible position. So your point would be, and I, I see that, that you have one denervated myocyte. And if I just look at the same denervated myocyte, that person could be normal where you're saying if there's at least two of those, it's more likely to be abnormal. And I, I would probably agree with that. Yeah. And I think the harder question follow-up question to that is, is if there's just one, you know, I, I remember as a resident discussing this with one of my mentors and, you know, with the, the discussion was, can you blow off one fibrillation? But then the, the argument is if there's a fibrillation, there's a denervated fiber. Right. right. So you we should agree. not have a fibrillation. So it's a denervated fiber. Now, does that mean that there's root damage and is it enough to call? I think we would probably all agree we're less comfortable if we just have a single fib versus having several fibrillations or, or several spots of increased insertion like you were describing. Yeah. So can I tell you how I, I often handle that? Let's say it's this guy, this person, they're five weeks out and they have one clear fibrillation my fibrillation, my 15 to 20 second fibrillation in the tricep, okay? So it's probably in C7 and they say they have numbness in their little finger and they have a little bit of weakness somewhere else just to prove it. So I will say there's a one electrodiagnostic finding highly suggestive, but not clearly diagnostic for a right C7 radiculopathy with very little axon loss. I might interpret it that way, or I might say of unclear significance. I don't believe it. Yeah, and so, I, I'll I'll do something similar. I might word it almost like the flip and say, and and this gets into the point that we're clinicians and we're using our clinical judgment as well, rather than just simply performing a test. But I might say, while there's not definite evidence of a radiculopathy, the minimal changes in the triceps in the context of the patient's symptoms could be due to a very mild or early process involving the root. Yeah. So I, I might hedge, but hedge pointing the referring physician the direction that this is what I'm thinking. I think this could be significant, but I'm not sure. I would do virtually the same thing. I will also say if I'm on the fence or if I think I'm 
at risk of overinterpreting, like nerve conductance and stuff like that for neuropathies and that, I might say, I'll say some labs would call this normal. And I just put it out there so that they know that I'm maybe pushing the envelope on interpretation. It might be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I think these are these are tough, you know, these are tough cases. And I think the last point to the last question, and you you mentioned this, and I do want to mention it, it's if it's been three weeks, we may or may not start to see increased insertional activity or fibs, but you mentioned recruitment. And if the patient, if you know, if they have an acute radiculopathy that's sufficient to block some of the conduction, then recruitment you might see reduced recruitment in those They're muscles. really weak. Yes. Agreed. You've yeah. seen that before. So like yeah. in the, right. Yeah. So like in this, I'm going to show this last, I just my only other slide in this patient from the triceps. And this is at a long sweep of a one second sweep. And I don't, hopefully you'll be able to hear this. I may have not hit the sound button. Can you hear that? I cannot. No, I forgot to hit the zoom sound button. But the point of this without hearing it is this these couple motor units are firing at about 20 hertz and the morphology was actually pretty good um pretty normal so there was reduced recruitment in in the patient in the pronator teres um and slightly in the triceps also so do you look at that do you you know i mean do you do you do you care about recruitment no <laughs> I think no. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. <laughs> um, I, in this case, I would look at recruitment and I would probably agree that looks like it's probably decreased recruitment. But you, I use modern polars and you use concentrics, I believe. Right. right? But, I, but does that matter for recruitment? Oh, I do. I think it does. So my view would be <laughs> just bait me. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and but I, you know, I, the science behind it, I think, is not so great. But that you you don't see as many motor units with uh, at least I do when I use a concentric because I use both, and it's way easier for me to find twenty hertz motor units that fire at twenty hertz with a concentric needle than it is with a monopolar. And I think because I, you just see more motor units because the concentric, you get 180 degrees, whereas with a monopolar, you get 360 degrees. So, so that's opinion, though. So I want to I wanna have a bet with you. Okay. A beer <laughs> okay. bet. Beer bet. A, a beer bet. I'd like you to send me a clip of a, an EMG clip of 20 hertz in a normal patient that's not a facial muscle. Because I don't With, think I don't think you can okay. fire at twenty hertz in a normal muscle and find it. I don't I don't think so. I mean, and find it. You 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 know that normal motor units fire at twenty hertz all the time, but you can't find it because they 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 don't fire at that rate without having at least ten motor units firing. Agreed. Okay. And it's hard to identify when you have 10. For me, it'd be hard to identify right. a unique motor unit at uh, with 10 motor units firing, filling oh. the baseline. I, I think I see it at 20 hertz, and I'm just taking the fastest guy. Yeah. But but okay, I, that is a fair challenge. And <laughs> I got to say, just at the AANEM last meeting last, you know, last month, uh, Sanjeev Nandekar convinced me 
that I'm using 20 and you sh I should be using 16 or 17 hertz. That I'm, I'm missing some case, and I know I agree I'm missing cases. Well, no, I agree, and I, you know, I think uh, we, we're going to have to have another recording. We and talk about recruitment. We could do this for an hour. I present a, a whole session at AANEM on motor unit recruitment, and I think the mild recruitment that that cutoff of of how fast a motor unit fires for mild reduced recruitment hasn't been as well defined. And I would agree completely. I think in in very mild reduced recruitment, and I'm actually looking at this, um, if you have a motor unit that's firing at somewhere between 12 to 14 hertz before a second motor unit comes in, so er, minimal effort in most muscles, not all muscles, uh, that's probably mildly reduced recruitment. So I think that bar drops even lower. I think, and that's why I said, I think if you're identifying motor units at 20 hertz, there's already moderately se to severe reduced recruitment. I, I would say that's almost, you and I agree with that, I, with with a monopolar. But with a concentric, I think not. But you're going to disagree with me. So we have a bet. Yeah, I don't use my concentrics all that much because mostly when I'm just doing single fiber. So uh, I will, but. But, they, but the concentric. Out, I like that. Well, no, I mean, you're right. The concentric needle is going to have a smaller pickup area, but it's not. I don't think it's substantially smaller that you're still you're not going to still pick up the the nearby motor units. They may be a little bit smaller in amplitude because they're a little more distant, but they're still firing. And so I I don't know that there's a substantial difference in what unless you have such strict criteria of amplitude of the motor unit or rise time of the motor unit that you're including when you're assessing recruitment. I'm not so sure that there would be such a big difference in the number of motor units that the the needle is is recording. I I see your point. I, I and I I understand that, and I'm not sure that I agree with it. But I can't disprove you. All I could say is what I think I've seen is that normal people with 20 hertz motor units, I find that way more frequently with a concentric than with a monopolar. So at the end of the day, our bet is that I'm going to find something in a person that that's normal. Like I could send you a fake one, but I we wouldn't. That like there's yeah. you no know, sport in that. And my residents will will haunt me on this. Like they'll okay. You know, like so they, we they have like we have till next November when the AANEM meeting is to pick find find cases like that, find examples, okay. and we'll sit down at AANEM and uh, we can sit in front of an audience and we can debate our clips. Oh man, you're <laughs> crushing me. Okay, yeah, that would be kind of fun. Or we could just sit <laughs> at it and have a beer together. To be yeah, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, I, I'm I'm okay. I think our field is not scientific enough in recruitment, and the only way it's going to get scientific is if we number one talk about it, look at what we're doing, and then do some science. And I would, at least from what I've seen out of the you're, out of the younger generation, I'm going to call you, you're far away. Your teaching is phenomenal. Like I go and I listen and I go, man, you're good at it. So, and you're making the difference with all of our young electromographers. I mean, they really like it. And I have tremendous respect. So when I, when you talk, I do listen. I don't agree, 
but I do. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. These are good points to, we, you know, we're using data that are, that's old data year decades old. And it is important to refine, redefine the data, particularly when it comes to these reference values and reference data, not just for nerve conductions, but for needle exam and, uh, you know, even size of motor unit potentials. Most of that data is old from many years ago. And, um, and so Last I think, century, right? yeah, so I think, I think there's much more that could be done. I agree with you completely that to, 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 to fine tune what we're doing. Yeah. So and I, I, I'm totally game for it. I mean, it's fun. Yeah. Well, this is this has been great. So I think that the take home points of this case, uh, let's make sure we agree on these, is that uh, from what I'm hearing, we can perform an EMG in a in a three week old patient sent for Redick, but with caution and with the caveats that we may not be able to identify uh, definite abnormalities and may want to repeat the study. Agreed. Two fibrillations or increased insertional activity might be identified even earlier than three weeks, maybe two to three weeks, and particularly in the paraspinal. So we always want to examine those if we can in that time frame. Agreed. And uh, and number three, to always perform a Babinski sign in patients with neck pain. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, those are great points, and I hope the audience will will remember them. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, and uh, for us to chat and teach teach our viewers uh, some practical knowledge from a very experienced and seasoned electromyographer. So, thank well, you, thank you. It's an honor, Devin. Great to talk to you, and we'll see you at the next meeting. All right, sounds good. Well, I hope you enjoyed that that lessons from the lab. It was a great time as I expected with Dr. Anderi. And as we discussed at the end of the interview, there are some important teaching points that I think are related to what seems to be a fairly simple case. Uh, we see lots of patients that are sent for an EMG for radiculopathy, and sometimes it's obvious whether they have it or not, but in certain instances, such as this case, it wasn't very obvious, and particularly when patients have mild symptoms um, or have very early symptoms, we, we may not see much on the EMG. And I think what, what I always think about and what we discussed is that the nerve conduction studies are, are not very helpful in most radiculopathies unless it's more severe or unless we're performing them to exclude an alternative diagnosis such as carpal tunnel uh, or median neuropathy at the wrist or an ulnar neuropathy. So they are important to perform, but if we're solely looking for a radiculopathy, they're probably le the least sensitive study. Uh, the other important point that comes up often in our lab is the timing of performing the study. And as Dr. Anderi mentioned, sometimes patients say they have only had symptoms for three weeks, but then if you ask them further, they, they say, well, you know what, come to think of it, I actually have had symptoms on and off for a longer period of time. And the likelihood in my experience is that in those situations, we may identify changes uh, more often than not, uh, or compared to a patient who says, I only have had symptoms for three weeks. The, uh, the other point is that even if they've only had symptoms for three or four weeks, we still may be able to identify subtle abnormalities, but it's important to pay attention to the subtleties and not rush through the study. And sometimes those 
fibrillations in the paraspinals are in the deeper la layers of the muscle, or you have to move the needle to different segments or sections of the muscle to identify them. So it's not always a cursory examination that will identify the abnormalities. Uh, the other point is pay attention to recruitment. We have some disagreements about recruitment, but I do think we agree that in early neurogenic processes, such as an early radiculopathy that's severe enough to knock out or damage several axons, recruitment may be the only abnormality. And so it's important to pay attention to reduced recruitment uh, to, 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 to determine or, or not overlook a mild or early radiculopathy. So I think those are useful points to think about. They're practical points, and hopefully you'll remember those as, as you're examining patients that are sent to your laboratory. Thank you for tuning in and look forward to next time. Bye-bye.